you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open them up there to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you today, um, and you're joining us in here, here in person, uh, we have some New American Standard uh, Bibles in the back, uh, on the back table, right there next to the offering box. You can also use that offering box if this is your first time here uh, to take one of those connection cards, fill it out, let us know who you are and uh, how we can pray for you and uh, maybe contact information. If you want to share that with us, you can place that in the box as well. You can also use that box to give this morning. Uh, We don't pass a plate here, but we do give and we worship through giving. So you can do that physically here or you can do that online. Copagrace.org, there's a a link there where you can give. I want to welcome you Um, If we haven't already, to Grace Fellowship Church, and welcome to everybody who's joining us online. Uh, Many in our church family are homebound today, and um, we'll be watching this later this afternoon or maybe later this week. We want to welcome you as we look at God's Word today in regards to this idea of God demonstrating His many things about Him and, and the ways that He demonstrates Himself to us, uh, but how that culminates really in the cross. Uh, Sometimes uh, communication uh, is difficult between human individuals, is it not? If you're married, you're shaking your head yes. Especially considering the differences between the sexes, between cultures, between different customs. Some have not only recognized such difficulties, but have also brought them to our attention uh, by publishing works like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Have you ever heard of that book? many others. We desire to be understood. We want to be understood. We desire to understand one another. We try our very best to demonstrate our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, our commitments. But oftentimes, we as humans fail to have full assurance that we have succeeded in communication and in communicating these things to one another clearly. Today in the book of Romans, we're going to discover that God has demonstrated himself through the work of Christ on the cross. And so turn with me now to Romans chapter 3, verses 26 through 31, and follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures as I read, starting in verse 26. Paul writes, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. 
Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. A few things I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, from just this whole passage we looked at a little bit last week. And if you weren't with us last week, um, you'll remember this word that's used in verse 26. If you were with us last week, you'll remember this word. If not, this is the first time. Verse 26, he says, for the demonstration. He's already mentioned that word demonstration in verse 25. Talking about Jesus when he went to the cross and he died on the cross in our place. Paul is saying that was an act of God's demonstrating something. God is demonstrating something to everyone who's ever lived. And anyone who ever will live in the future. God is demonstrating something in his son on the cross. He's demonstrating his righteousness, he says in verse 25. And then verse 26, he says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier who has faith in Jesus. So this is not unlike other things that Paul has already told us in the previous chapters. As a matter of fact, at the, in the very middle of chapter 1, remember what he says about the gospel. He says, in the gospel, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, though many people think it's foolish, other people call it, consider it a scandalous thing. He says, I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God unto righteousness. For in it, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. So already we have this idea of God demonstrating, God revealing. Okay, and then the rest of chapter 1, he talks about God's revelation, the way God reveals himself in nature, just through what's been made. And then he talks about how he's revealed himself to this particular people, elect people in the Old Testament, Israel. He said God has revealed himself to them through his law. So he's already talked about revelation. He's also used the word manifested in chapter 3 that we looked at last week. In verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So are you, are you, are you catching that? God is doing something. God is revealing something in the gospel. That's huge. The righteousness of God is being revealed. It's being manifested. It's being demonstrated, he says. In Verses 25 and 26, the word that's used, that's translated demonstrated, if you have that in your Bible, the word demonstrated is a Greek word in the original Greek called praetheta, which means to publicly display. Sometimes, just when we think in the English of the word demonstration, you can demonstrate something to someone individually, right? In private, no one else sees it, or it's not open to a great crowd of people or whatever, but that's not what... That's not what's happening here with what God has done through Jesus on the cross. It's actually public. It's, it's not only public, but it's public and it's historical in such a way that generations and generations and generations are going to hear about it. They're going to know about it. Because God's church is going to tell people. We're going to evangelize. We're going to tell people the good news. They're going to learn about this. This is a very public thing. Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection was not a private matter. It was very public. God is demonstrating something publicly. In Romans 5, 6, not to get ahead because we're going to get there later on. But in Romans 5, 6, Paul says that 
In the gospel, what we see in the event of Christ's death on the cross is something that is happening at the right time. He says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By the way, that's you and me. Christ died for the ungodly at the right time. And then Galatians chapter 4, I want to read this, if you want to flip over to Galatians chapter 4 in your Bible. You'll see again, this is Paul, how he describes this idea of God's demonstration and the timing of it. Just going to look at verses 1 through 5. So he writes, starting in verse 4, or uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave altogether. He is owner of everything. Now he's talking about contextually something he's already discussing. Now just skip down to verse 3. He says, So we also, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He used the same type of language here, at the right time, when the fullness of time came. All of time is culminating at the cross. So it's a demonstration. But it's not just a public demonstration. It is God's demonstration. That's so important. It's not just something that happens. And it's not that something that Jesus does on his own initiative. He actually tells his disciples this many, many times. As he talks about what he's about to do, he talks about the will of the Father over and over and over. They ask him, hey, we, you know, who, which one of us is going to be first in your kingdom? Who are you going to name? He's like, that's not even mine to give. That's the Father's authority to give. He's constantly pointing to the Father because God the Father is the one who is demonstrating his righteousness through his son Jesus on the cross. So this is all God's. Notice what he says in verse 25. You go back to Romans 3, 25. In verse 25, we learn that it is God who displays Jesus publicly. God's doing the displaying. Again in verse 25, it is God who is passing over the sins previously committed in his mercy, in his forbearance, in his patience. He's the one passing over sins previously committed. We also see in verse 26, it is God's righteousness that is being manifest, or being demonstrated rather. God is, in verse 26, the just one and the justifier. It's all him. In Romans 1.17, by way of re- reminder, it is God's righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul's going to compare what our life was like before Christ to what happened and what our life looks like after Christ. He says in verse 1, you were dead. In your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh 
and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. He's saying this was our condition. Right? Look at verse 4. What a powerful phrase. But God. That's the difference maker. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, that's the difference that, that the gospel makes. We learned last week that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just another man-achieved religion. It, it's completely of God, and that's what sets it apart from every other, quote-unquote, religion in the world. Because it's about what God has done, not about what we try to do and fail miserably at over and over and over. It's about what God has done. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21... We learn that it is God who makes Jesus, he says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. God's doing that. God is making his son a curse on the cross for you and for me. It's all the work of God. So it's a demonstration, but it's a demonstration... By God. He's the one doing the demonstrating. And what does he demonstrate on the cross? I want to look at just a few things this morning. What do we see God demonstrating through the cross of Jesus Christ? The cross is a place, first of all, where God acts swiftly. He acts swiftly. This is what we learn from this passage. Look at what he says here in verse 26. God is demonstrating his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He says in verse 25 that God in his mercy had spent a long time passing over sins previously committed. Now, the accuser, Satan, would I'm sure question God, our Father, and say, what took you so long? The psalmist is going to write many times, Oh Lord, how long must we wait for the day of salvation? God, how, how long must I wait under all of this persecution by my enemies? Lord, how long must I wait for the day of your salvation? And God waits, and God waits, and God waits, and God's, God waits. And as God is waiting, those who are looking for his justice are raising our fists and saying, where is our justice? Have you ever been cheated? Have you ever been lied to? Have you ever been scammed? Man, I remember one time, this was years ago, we were living, we were, I was pastoring a church in Texas, we were living in the church's house, they had a parsonage. In England it would be called a vicarage, right? And we lived there, and I think it was actually Sunday morning. Woke up, went outside on Sunday morning, and all of our car doors were open. Somebody had broken into every vehicle on our street. And I was like, oh no, my wallet was in my car. And we actually found my wallet and all of my personal information, all my ID, 
out in a field somewhere behind somebody's house. They didn't take, they were just looking for money. But I just remember at that moment going, feeling like so violated. Have you ever felt like that? Like you just like feel just like violated and you're like, ah, I want them to pay, right? We feel that way many times, but what we learn here is that God's timing is perfect. And in the cross, in that moment when Jesus died in our place on the cross, it was God executing his justice and it was, it's a symbol to, to show us, it's God telling us, he will act. He will execute his justice. But it's in his timing. But when he acts, he acts swiftly. No more forbearance. Forbearance was something of the past. Now he's no longer passing over sins previously committed. Now he's sending his son to die on the cross And every single person, past, present, and future, must decide what they're going to do with this man named Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? William Secker once wrote, Though the patience of God be lasting, yet it is not everlasting. It has an expiration date. Why? Because God is good. Sometimes when we think of God's goodness, we only think of his mercy. We equate his goodness with mercy. As long as God continues to be merciful for us, and and as long as he continues to, with forbearance, look upon us and look upon our sin, that's what we equate to goodness. We usually don't equate his justice with goodness. Why? Because we're sinners. And when we really think about it, we don't want his justice. When it comes to, to us, right? We want more mercy. We want more forbearance. But in order for God to really, truly be God and really be good, he must execute his judge, justice upon sin. And so he, he acts swiftly. Let this picture that we get, that God demonstrates from the cross, let it, let the cross demonstrate for you personally that God is very patient with you. Very patient with you. Very patient with me. But also, let it demonstrate to you and to me that sin is nothing to be trifled with. It's nothing for us to to entertain and to enjoy thinking that God's judgment's not gonna come. The day of the Lord's not gonna come. He's... He's going to continue to put judgment off. Don't get comfortable with sin. Don't don't trifle with sin. Also, let it teach you and let it teach me that God will will not allow the world to continue the way it is. You know, there are many that that, that over the last couple of years have been very upset and I don't just mean like emotionally. I just mean like the, your world has become discombobulated because of things happening in the world with COVID or with politics or a mixture of the two. Many people are worried. Many people are, are looking at things that are happening and, and asking the question, oh Lord, where, where is your justice? Where is your judgment? How long will this continue? Critics would say, 
The cynics would say, everything continues to move on the way that it is. Nothing's ever gonna change. But we have God's word that tells us when God decides to act, and by the way, that's his perfect timing, he will act. And nothing will hold him back. Christ will return. We know he will return. And when he does, the Bible says he will come like a thief in the night. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12 through 13, Paul writes, The night is almost gone. So therefore, let us behave properly today in the daytime as if it is the day. Looking for the day of the Lord. The night's almost gone. So live like he's coming at any moment. He acts swiftly. And then also he acts unilaterally. He doesn't need anyone's help. Notice what the Bible says here in verse 26. That he might be just, that is righteous, that is fair, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God acts unilaterally. When he decides to move, when he decides to act, he does it sovereignly, by his own will, and in his own ability. In Job chapter 38, going back to the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, uh, the story of Job is, is so powerful because it, is a, it gives us a picture of the way that we, it's a comparison of the way that we typically think about God and the way that God really is. And, and we learn so much about God's character. But there are times when we're tested and we're tried and, and we're suffering in life and we tend to question God's motives. And we, we tend to ask God, God, where are you? Are you working? What, what's going on here? And we, and we look for counsel from other people and other places. And so this is a particular situation where Job has several friends and his friends are always giving him advice because they're trying to figure it out too. Why would a, a person like Job, okay, the who's who, the best of the best. I mean, he's the most righteous person that we know. His friends would all say, the very best of us is Job. Why in the world would he be suffering? And so they give him all these reasons of why he could possibly suffer, suffer and he starts questioning the Lord and, and, and listen to how the Lord answers him. In chapter 38, verse one, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I read that and I go, man, that's, that's what I do a lot. When I start to think about, when I start to put into words and put on paper, what I think the Lord ought to do, he reminds me in his word that he has a plan. And that his working unilaterally in that plan is what's best for me. Not that it's any kind of team effort between me and God. In Romans 11, again, 
Paul is going to write. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? This is in Romans eleven thirty four. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? That is, who does God owe anything to? Right? These are the questions he's asking. And then he says in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> it all belongs to him. He's just and he is the justifier. This is a, one of the most beautiful things about the gospel. Is that when the enemy of God attacks his plan of redemption through the gospel... The enemy has no leg to stand on. Why? Because God is just and he's the justifier. How in the world could God possibly justify sinners like you and like me? How could he pull that off? We are sinners. And Satan is going to confront God, the creator of the universe, and the one who has redeemed us by the blood of Jesus, he is going to confront God and say, you cannot do that. You cannot pardon people who are guilty. You can't just forgive them. That only, that only placates the situation for a short time. But we have, as sinners, each one of us, we have a massive rap sheet we have stacks and stacks and stacks of evidence against us in the court. And we don't have a defense. We have no excuse. But God says, I'm providing a way through my son who's going to die on the cross. A sinless sacrifice. That is, he's not dying because he deserves it. He's dying because of the love of the father towards his children. So God provides that sinless sacrifice and if we simply through faith in him, that is we entrust our life to him and we believe in him, then full forgiveness, not just personal forgiveness on God's part, but I mean full pardon is yours and mine. Amen? That's what we have in the gospel. But it only, it's only possible if God acts unilaterally apart from anybody else's help. Why? Because he's the author and creator. He's the one who started all this. He spoke everything into existence. It all goes back into the box and the box belongs to him. He acts unilaterally. If we just bring the scenes of the cross before us, we, we recognize that because Jesus himself is alone. In that moment, you know, during his ministry, there were thousands of people who would follow him around. We'll follow you wherever you go. We'll do whatever you say. Teach us. He had apostles and disciples and they had disciples, but when he was at the cross... He was alone. Almost all of his disciples were in hiding. Those who loved him for the bread and the fish that he multiplied for them were nowhere to be found. He was alone. 
In Isaiah 53, 3, we read, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was alone at the cross. You know, it's wise counsel for us to not attempt to do things alone. Right? I mean, even Scripture says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Right? Two are better than one. They have good return for their labor. Don't do anything alone. It's good advice. But it, when it comes to salvation, it must be God alone. It has to be God alone. It has to be Christ alone. It's not Christ plus works. It's not Jesus plus religion. It's Christ alone. It's God alone. He acts unilaterally at the cross. And then finally, the third picture that we get is that God acts thoroughly. He acts thoroughly at the cross. In verse 27, he says, after saying God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, this is all of God, unilateral work, no one else's help, therefore, see there's, a, there's an application coming from this. He says then, so then, where's boasting? Where's boasting? What can anyone say about their own righteousness? Nothing. Nothing. The cross leaves us speechless. It, it causes us to praise God, amen, but it leaves us speechless about ourselves. It has to. If we're not speechless at the, the scene of Calvary and Christ on the cross, we don't get it. We just don't get it. So he says in verse 27, where is boasting? It is what? Excluded. It's excluded. Not, it's fitting in the right circumstances. It's, it's okay for certain people. No. He says it is completely, thoroughly excluded. Man, mankind is out of the equation when it comes to God's gospel. He says, how is it excluded? By what kind of law? Is it excluded? Of works? He says no. But by law of faith. Verse 28, For we maintain that a, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Remember we, we looked at that last week in verse 21. He says essentially the same thing. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And now he comes and he says... In verse 28, a man, a person, is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The law still has its role, but it is not the justifier. The law doesn't justify. Only God justifies. 
He's the just and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's God's work, it's God's demonstration, and all we do is believe. We are, we, we believe, Grace Fellowship Church believes in a, not to be redundant, a believer's church. That is that a church is constituted, that is a church is a, is a gathering, is an assembly, is a body, is a family of believers. And so we are all on the same level. We are all on the same playing field. Because it's not church member and then deacon and then elder and then senior pastor, bishop, whatever. That's not the way that it works in the New Testament church. It is believer, Jesus. That's it. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. No intermediary. Paul's going to write Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's nobody, nobody fit to be an intermediary. And then he says in verse 29, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles only? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith. This is what Paul is getting to with his Jewish audience. He's saying you need to understand the role of the law. The, role, the, the law does not justify, but the law is also not to be completely thrown out. It has a role. And as we discovered last week, the role of the law is to witness, to bear witness of Christ and of God and of God's holiness and what has to happen for us to be saved. See, the law is, it, it's that story. And if we look at the law as a way for us to be justified, we're not reading the story correctly. It's supposed to point us to Christ and to cry out for a Savior. And so that's why Paul says here, God is the God of the Jews. He's the God of the Gentiles. He's, he's the creator who created everyone. And so whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are still justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. And it's all the work of God alone. So where is boasting? It's, it's excluded. We're justified apart from the law. Another term of exclusion. Justification comes apart from the law. God removes any residue of the self here in this passage. Later on, he's going to say, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Man, I just, I love that phrase. Just like in Ephesians 2, but God, God did. God did. What the law could not do, what we could not do, God did. He accomplished it. So, I hope that you're encouraged. If you're, if you're here and you're a believer and you're a Christian and you're struggling in your faith and every day is a battle for you and it should be for us, especially in the culture that we live, I hope that this encourages you that God is in control and that he's faithful 
and that he will, he will finish what he started. He will finish what he started in your life. He will finish what he started in Christ. Christ is coming again. You can be assured of that. God is not slow about his promise, but he's patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to faith and repentance. But God's patience will not continue forever. And if you're a believer, that should be convicting to you, that should be encouraging to you. It should also continue to press us toward the mission of God and to be like Paul who said, I'm obligated both to Jews or both to Greeks and to barbarians. I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. So my life is going to be about telling people the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. My, my faith can't be private anymore because the cross was not a private matter. And if you're here listening to this online today, if you're here physically today, and you're hearing this, and this may sound strange if you, if you don't know the Lord, I, I hope that his word today presses you into faith. That you begin to understand that you need Christ, not a little bit of Jesus in your life. You need Christ to save you from your sins and to transform your life. And that you would make your appeal to God alone. Because he alone can save you. And he will save you through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, God, for your word today to us. For your grace and your mercy in your son, Jesus, who died in our place. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.